Chapter Thirteen, Part One, of *The Heir of Redcliffe*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Heir of Redcliffe* by Charlotte Yonge. Chapter Thirteen, Part One. O oh, thou child of many prayers, life hath quicksands, life hath snares. Care and age come unawares. Like the swell of some sweet tune, Morning rises into noon, May glides onward into June. Longfellow What is the matter with Amy? What makes her so odd? asked Charles, as his mother came to wish him good night. Poor little dear, don't take any notice, was all the answer he received, and seeing that he was to be told no more, he held his peace. Laura understood without being told. She, too, had thought Guy and Amy were a great deal together, and combining various observations, she perceived that her mother must have given Amy a caution. She therefore set herself, like a good sister, to shelter Amy as much as she could, save her from awkward situations, and, above all, to prevent her altered manner from being remarked. This was the less difficult, as Eveline was subdued and languid, and more inclined to lie on the sofa and read than to look out for mirth. As to poor little Amy, her task was in one way become less hard, for Guy had ceased to haunt her, and seemed to make it his business to avoid all that could cause her embarrassment, but in another way it hurt her much more, for she now saw the pain she was causing. If obliged to do anything for her, he would give a look as if to ask pardon, and then her rebellious heart would so throb with joy as to cause her dismay at having let herself fall into so hateful a habit as wishing to attract attention. What a struggle it was not to obey the impulse of turning to him for the smile with which he would greet anything in conversation that interests them both, and how wrong she thought it not to be more consoled when she saw him talking to Eveline or to any of the others, as if he was doing very well without her. This did not often happen. He was evidently out of spirits and thoughtful, and Amy was afraid some storm might be gathering respecting Mr. Sebastian Dixon, about whom there always seemed to be some uncomfortable mystery. Mrs. Edmonston saw everything and said nothing. She was very sorry for them both, but she could not interfere, and could only hope she had done right, and protected Amy as far as she was able. She was vexed now and then to see Eveline give knowing smiles and significant glances, feared that she guessed what was going on, and wondered whether to give her a hint not to add to Amy's confusion. But her great dislike to enter on such a subject prevailed, and she left things to take their course, thinking that for once Guy's departure would be a relief. The approach of anything in the shape of a party of pleasure was one of the best cures for Eveline's ailments, and the evening before Mary's tea-drinking she was in high spirits, laughing and talking a great deal, and addressing herself chiefly to Guy. He exerted himself to answer, but it did not come with life and spirit. His countenance did not light up, and at last Eveline said, "'Ah! I see I am a dreadful bore. I'll go away and leave you to repose.' "'Lady Eveline!' he exclaimed in consternation. "'What have I been doing? What have I been thinking of?' "'Nay, that is best known to yourself, though I think perhaps I could divine,' said she, with that archness and grace that always seemed to remove the unfavourable impression that her proceedings might have given. "'Shall I?' "'No, no,' he answered, colouring crimson, and then trying to laugh off his confusion, and find some answer, but without success. And Eveline, perceiving her aunt's eyes were upon her, suddenly recollected that she had gone quite as far as decorum allowed, and made as masterly a retreat as the circumstances permitted. Well, I have always thought a penny for your thoughts the boldest offer in the world, and now it is proved. 
This scene made Mrs. Edmonston doubly annoyed. The next morning at waking with a disabling headache, which made it quite impossible for her to attempt going to Mary Ross's fete. With great sincerity, Amy entreated to be allowed to remain at home, but she thought it would only be making the change more remarkable. She did not wish Mary to be disappointed. Among so many ladies, Amy could easily avoid getting into difficulties, while Laura would, she trusted, be able to keep Eveline in order. The day was sunny, and all went off to admiration. The gentlemen presided over the cricket, and the ladies over Blind Man's Bluff and Thread My Needle. But perhaps Mary was a little disappointed that though she had Sir Guy's bodily presence, the peculiar blitheness and animation which he usually shed around him were missing. He sung at church, he filled tiny cups from huge pitchers of tea, he picked up and pacified a screaming child that had tumbled off a gate. He was as good-natured and useful as possible, but he was not his joyous and brilliant self. Amy devoted herself to the smallest fry, played assiduously for three-quarters of an hour with a fat, grave boy of three, who stood about a yard and a half from her, solemnly throwing a ball into her lap and never catching it again, took charge of many caps and bonnets, and walked about with Louisa Harper, a companion whom no one envied her. In conclusion, the sky clouded over, it became chilly, and a shower began to fall. Laura pursued Eveline, and Amy hunted up Charlotte from the utmost parts of the field, where she was the very centre of winding up the clock, and sorely against her will dragged her off the wet grass. About sixty yards from the house Guy met them with an umbrella, which, without speaking, he gave to Charlotte. Amy said thank you, and again came that look. Charlotte rattled on and hung back to talk to Guy, so that Amy could not hasten on without leaving her shelterless. It may be believed that she had the conversation to herself. At the door they met Mary and her father, going to dismiss their flock, who had taken refuge in a cart-shed at the other end of the field. Guy asked if he could be of any use. Mr. Ross said no, and Mary begged Amy and Charlotte to go up to her room and change their wet shoes. There Amy would fain have stayed, flushed and agitated as those looks made her, but Charlotte was in wild spirits, delighted at having been caught in the rain and obliged to wear shoes a mile too large, and eager to go and share the fun in the drawing-room. There, in the twilight, they found a mass of young ladies herded together, making a confused sound of laughter and giggling, while at the other end of the room Amy could just see Guy sitting alone in a dark corner. Charlotte's tongue was soon the loudest in the medley, to which Amy did not at first attend, till she heard Charlotte saying, "'Oh, you should hear Guy sing that!' "'What?' she whispered to Eveline. "'The Land of the Leal,' was the answer. "'I wish he would sing it now,' said Ellen Harper." The darkness would be just the time for music, said Eveline. It is quite a witching time. Why don't you ask him, said Ellen. Come, Charlotte, there's a good girl. Go and ask him. Shall I? said Charlotte, whispering and giggling with an affectation of shyness. No, no, Charlotte, said Laura. No? Why not? said Eveline. Don't be afraid, Charlotte. He is so grave, said Charlotte. Eveline had been growing wilder and less guarded all day, and now— Partly liking to tease and surprise the others, and partly emboldened by the darkness, she answered, "'It will do him all manner of good. Here, Charlotte, I'll tell you how to make him. Tell him Amy wants him to do it.' "'Aye, tell him so,' cried Ellen, and they laughed in a manner that overpowered Amy with horror and shyness. She sprung to seize Charlotte and stop her. She could not speak, but Louisa Harper caught her arm, and Laura's grave orders were drowned in a universal titter and suppressed exclamation. "'Go, Charlotte, go. We will never forgive you if you don't.' "'Stop!' Amy struggled to cry, breaking from Louisa, and springing up in a sort of agony. 
Guy, who had such a horror of singing anything deep in pathos or religious feeling to mixed or unfit auditors, asked to do so in her name. Stop! Oh, Charlotte! It was too late. Charlotte, thoughtless with merriment, amused at vexing Laura, set up with applause and confident in Guy's good nature, had come to him and was saying, Oh, Guy, Amy wants you to come and sing us the land of the leal. Amy saw him start up. What did he think of her? Oh, what! He stepped towards them. The silly girls cowered as if they had roused a lion. His voice was not loud, it was almost as gentle as usual, but it quivered, as if it was hard to keep it so, and as well as she could see, his face was rigid and stern as iron. "'Did you wish it?' he said, addressing himself to her, as if she was the only person present. Her breath was almost gone. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' she faltered. She could not exculpate herself. She saw it looked like an idol, almost like an indecorous trick, unkind, everything abhorrent to her and to him, especially in the present state of things. His eyes were on her, his head bent towards her. He waited for an answer. "'I beg your pardon,' was all she could say. There was, yes, there was, one of those fearful flashes of his kindling eye. She felt as if she were shrinking to nothing. She heard him say, in a low, hoarse tone, I am afraid I cannot. Then Mr. Ross, Mary, lights came in. There was a bustle and confusion, and when next she was clearly conscious, Laura was ordering the carriage. When it came, there was an inquiry for Sir Guy. He has gone home, said Mr. Ross. I met him in the passage and wished him good night. Mr. Ross did not add what he afterwards told his daughter, that Guy seemed not to know whether it was raining or not that he had put an umbrella into his hand and seen him march off at full speed through the pouring rain with it under his arm. The ladies entered the carriage. Amy leaned back in her corner. Laura forbore to scold either Eveline or Charlotte till she could have them separately. Eveline was silent, because she was dismayed at the effect she had produced, and Charlotte, because she knew there was a scolding impending over her. They found no one in the drawing-room but Mr. Edmonston and Charles, who said they had heard the door open and Guy run upstairs, but they supposed he was wet through, as he had not made his appearance. It was very inhospitable in the girls not to have made room for him in their carriage. Amy went to see how her mother was, longing to tell her whole trouble, but found her asleep, and was obliged to leave it till the morrow. Poor child! She slept very little, but she would not go to her mother before breakfast, lest she should provoke the headache into staying another day. Guy was going by the train at twelve o'clock, and she was resolved that something should be done. So, as soon as her father had wished Guy good-bye and ridden off to his justice meeting, she entreated her mother to come into the dressing-room and hear what she had to say. "'Oh, Mamma, the most dreadful thing has happened!' And hiding her face she told her story, ending with a burst of weeping, as she said how Guy was displeased. "'And well he might be, that after all that has vexed him this week I should tease him with such a trick. Oh, Mamma, what must he think?' My dear, there was a good deal of silliness, but you need not treat it as if it was so very shocking. Oh, but it hurt him. He was angry, and now I know how it is. He is angry with himself for being angry. Oh, how foolish I have been! What shall I do? Perhaps we can let him know it was not your fault, said Mrs. Edmonston, thinking it might be very salutary for Charlotte to send her to confess. Do you think so? cried Amy eagerly. Oh, that would make it all comfortable only it was partly mine for not keeping Charlotte in better order, and we must not throw it all on her and Eveline. You think we may tell him? I think he ought not to be allowed to fancy you let your name be used so. A message came from Mrs. Edmonston, and while she was attending to it, Amy hastened away, 
fully believing that her mother had authorized her to go and explain it to Guy and ask his pardon. It was what she thought the natural thing to do, and she was soon by his side, as she saw him pacing with folded arms under the wall. Much had lately been passing in Guy's mind. He had gone on floating on the sunny stream of life at Hollywell, too happy to observe its especial charm, till the change in Amy's manner cast a sudden gloom over all. Not till then did he understand his own feelings, and recognize in her the being he had dreamt of. Amy was what made Hollywell precious to him. Sternly as he was wont to treat his impulses, he did not look on his affection as an earth-born fancy, liable to draw him from higher things, and therefore to be combated. He deemed her rather a guide and guard, whose love might arm him, soothe him, and encourage him. Yet he had little hope, for he did not do justice to his powers of inspiring affection. No one could distrust his temper and his character as much as he did himself, and with his ancestry, and the doom he believed attached to his race, with his own youth and untried principles, with his undesirable connections, and the reserve he was obliged to exercise regarding them, he considered himself as objectionable a person as could well be found, as yet untouched by any positive crime, and he respected the Edmonstons too much to suppose that these disadvantages could be counterbalanced for a moment by his position. Indeed, he interpreted Amy's coolness by supposing that there was a desire to discourage his attentions. No poor tutor or penniless cousin ever felt he was doing a more desperate thing in confessing an attachment than did Sir Guy Morville when he had determined that all should be told at the risk of losing her for ever, and closing against himself the doors of his happy home. It was not right and fair by her parents, he thought, so to regard their daughter, and live in the same house with his sentiments unavowed. And as to Amy herself— if his feelings had reached such a pitch of sensitiveness that he must needs behave like an angry lion, because her name had been dragged into an idle joke, it was high time it should be explained, unpropitious as the moment might be for declaring his attachment, when he had manifested such a temper as any woman might dread. Thus he made up his mind that, come of it what might, he would not leave Hollywell that day till the truth was told. Just as he was turning to find Mrs. Edmonston, and put his fate to the touch, a little figure stood beside him, and Amy's own sweet low tones were saying imploringly, "'Guy, I wanted to tell you how sorry I am you were so teased last night.' "'Don't think of it,' said he, taken extremely by surprise. "'It was our fault. I could not stop it. I should have kept Charlotte in better order, but they would not let her hear me. I knew it was what you disliked particularly, and I was very sorry.' "'You—' "'I was—I was—' I was. "'But no matter now, Amy,' he added earnestly. "'May I ask you to walk on with me a little way? "'I must say something to you.' "'Was this what Mamma objected to?' "'Oh, no. "'Amy felt she must say now, and in truth she was glad it was right, "'though her heart beat fast, fast, faster, "'as Guy, pulling down a long trailing branch of noisette rose, "'and twisting it in his hand, paused for a few moments, "'then spoke collectedly and without hesitation, "'though with the tremulousness of subdued agitation.' looking the while not at her but straight before him. "'You ought to be told why your words and looks have such an effect on me as to make me behave as I did last night. Shame on me for such conduct. I know it is evil, and how preposterous it must make what I have to tell you. I don't know how long it has been, but almost ever since I came here a feeling has been growing up in me towards you, such as I can never have for anyone else.' The flame rushed into Amy's cheeks, and no one could have told what she felt as he paused again, and then went on speaking more quickly, as if his emotion was less under control. "'If ever there is to be happiness for me on this earth, it must be through you, as you for the last three years have been all my brightness here. 
What I feel for you is beyond all power of telling you, Amy, but I know full well all there is against me. I know I am untried, and how can I dare to ask one born to brightness and happiness to share the doom of my family? Amy's impulse was that anything shared with him would be welcome, but the strength of the feeling stifled the power of expression, and she could not utter a word. It seems selfish even to dream of it, he proceeded, yet I must, I cannot help it, to feel that I had your love to keep me safe, to know that you watched for me, prayed for me, were my own, my Verena, oh, Amy, it would be more joy than I had ever dared to hope for. But mind, he added, after another brief pause, I would not even ask you to answer me now, far less to bind yourself, even if, if it were possible. I know my trial is not come, and were I to render myself by positive act unworthy even to think of you, it would be too dreadful to have entangled you and made you unhappy. No, I speak now because I ought not to remain here with such feelings unknown to your father and mother. At that moment, close on the other side of the box-tree clump, were heard the wheels of Charles's garden-chair, and Charlotte's voice talking to him, as he made his morning tour round the garden. Amy flew off like a little bird to its nest, and never stopped till, breathless and crimson, she darted into the dressing-room, threw herself on her knees, and with her face hidden in her mother's lap, exclaimed in panting, half-smothered whispers, which needed all Mrs. Edmonston's intuition to make them intelligible, "'Oh, Mama, Mama, he says, he says he loves me!' Perhaps Mrs. Edmonston was not so very much surprised, but she had no time to do more than raise and kiss the burning face, and see, at a moment's glance, how bright was the gleam of frightened joy in the downcast eye and troubled smile, when two knocks, given rapidly, were heard, and almost at the same moment the door opened, and Guy stood before her, his face no less glowing than that which Amy buried again on her mother's knee. "'Come in, Guy,' said Mrs. Edmonston, as he stood doubtful for a moment at the door and there was a sweet smile of proud, joyful affection on her face, conveying even more encouragement than her tone. Amy raised her head and moved as if to leave the room. "'Don't go,' he said earnestly, "'unless you wish it.' Amy did not wish it, especially now that she had her mother to save her confusion, and she sat on a footstool, holding her mother's hand, looking up at Guy whenever she felt bold enough, and hanging down her head when he said what showed how much more highly he prized her than silly little Amy could deserve. "'You know what I am come to say,' he began, standing by the mantel-shelf, as was his wont in his conferences with Mrs. Edmonston, and he repeated the same in substance as he had said to Amy in the garden, though with less calmness and coherence, and far more warmth of expression, as if now that she was protected by her mother's presence he exercised less force in self-restraint. Never was any one happier than was Mrs. Edmonston, loving Guy so heartily, seeing the beauty of his character in each word, rejoicing that such affection should be bestowed on her little Amy, exulting in her having won such a heart, and touched and gratified by the free confidence with which both had at once hastened to pour out all to her, not merely as a duty, but in the full ebullition of their warm young love. The only difficulty was to bring herself to speak with prudence becoming her position, while she was sympathizing with them as ardently as if she was not older than both of them put together. When Guy spoke of himself as unproved and undeserving of trust, it was all she could do to keep from declaring there was no one whom she thought so safe. "'Will you go on as you have begun, Guy? If you tell me to hope—oh, Mrs. Edmonston, is it wrong that an earthly incentive to persevere should have power which sometimes seems greater than the true one?' "'There is the best and strongest ground of all for trusting you,' said she. "'If you spoke keeping right only for Amy's sake, then I might fear—' but when she is second, there is confidence indeed. If speaking were all, said Guy. 
There is one thing I ought to say, she proceeded. You know you are very young, and though, though I don't know that I can say so in my own person, a prudent woman would say that you have seen so little of the world that you may easily meet a person you would like better than such a quiet little dull thing as your guardian's daughter. The look that he cast on Amy was worth seeing, and then, with a smile, he answered, I am glad you don't say it in your own person. It is very bold and presumptuous in me to say anything at all in Papa's absence, said Mrs. Edmonston, smiling, but I am sure he will think in the same way, that things ought to remain as they are, and that it is our duty not to allow you to be or to feel otherwise than entirely at liberty. I dare say it may be right in you, said Guy, grudgingly. However, I must not complain. It is too much that you should not reject me altogether. To all three that space was as bright a gleam of sunshine as ever embellished life, so short as to be free from a single care, a perfectly serenely happy present, the more joyous from having been preceded by vexations, each of the two young things learning that there was love where it was most precious. Guy especially, isolated and lonely as he stood in life, with his fear and mistrust of himself, was now not only allowed to love, and assured beyond his hopes that Amy returned his affection, but found himself thus welcomed by the mother, and gathered into the family where his warm feelings had taken up their abode, while he believed himself regarded only as a guest and a stranger. End of chapter 13, part 1